0: And the watch, this is just a wild thing to think about. The watch sold for just 17,000 pounds to a private collector. Um, And allegedly, the rumor is that the watch remains in the same private collection today. And, you know, if if I were a, a betting man, I would say this is... Rolex's ace of spades uh, like this is the the number one watch on the top of their list that they want to have in their museum Hello and welcome to the hairspring
1: watches podcast with me Eric Gustafson and your co-host Max Braun Hello, uh, you know, it feels so for- formulaic to say welcome back. I'm never sure how to start these things uh, Like you could do the casual conversation intro where like Max, how are you? But no one actually gives a fuck how we are. Sorry, Max's mom They just want to hear the, the like the audio, you know they want to know about watches. Um, so I don't know. Should we just dive right in?
0: What we can wanna- do is like each of us could hold up like a watch to our mics so people can hear the ticking <laughs> and that could be the introduction. Uh,
1: yeah. Hard pass. Hard pass.
0: We can just start. We can just start. OK, Max, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Better now that we're talking. How are you? I'm great. Um, I'm hot off the heels
1: of a Red Bar Meetup last night, which was fun. Um, I, don't, I don't really make it out to all of them, but I enjoy going when I'm able. Uh, there wasn't kind of a lot to write home about, except for there was a gold 8171 uh, Petalone, which was really amazing to see. And uh, some. Uh, one guy brought a piece, unique Armin Strom with a dial in Korean, which was really unexpected and kind of cool to see too. So those are the highlights, but, um, I'm doing great. I'm I'm really excited about tonight's topic. Uh, I've had a lot of fun thinking about the kind of premise here. So maybe we should just dive right in.
0: That's the fastest I've ever heard somebody gloss over a gold Patalone, but okay.
1: Well, uh, yeah, this, this guy and I are friends. I mean, the, so I'm in, uh, boulder which is very close to denver which is where i go to these meetups and there really aren't uh uh, not to be you know i I never want to be um like condescending anyway but there aren't a lot of like really serious watch collectors here but they're basically two uh, and we're we're friends and uh this guy has uh made some amazing acquisitions recently one of which was this Patalone alone and the other was a uh, uh, Longines summatore, which is an equally, you know, beautiful, amazing, rare thing, especially in the condition that he has. Wow. So, yeah, I was really excited to see both of those and play with those a little bit. Uh, not something you get to do every day. Uh, you know, it, it, exceptional watch. Uh, it's a watch that we even talked about, I think, in what was it? Our second episode is maybe the consummate Rolex dress watch from that kind of era when they were doing complicated stuff. A very exciting thing
0: to see for sure. Yeah, consummate uh rolex dress watch for sure particularly in gold i mean in, it can go gold or steel but um, can you share uh where he got the watch
1: i cannot unfortunately okay. because i actually don't know he was a little coy about that but it's all good
0: yeah uh, fair enough um you raised a good point though uh yeah i i'm not sure how much of our audience knows where we are geographically, I think it would be pretty easy to assume that we're in New York or something. But you just heard Eric say he's in Boulder and finds himself in Denver quite a bit. Uh, I'm in Atlanta. And, and so I share that so that if anyone listening finds themselves uh, in either of our cities, please never hesitate to reach out. would love to go out to dinner grab a few drinks or meet you in person. Yeah,
1: I I quite enjoy those two. Uh, All watch meetups are welcome.
0: A hundred percent.
1: So not last night, but the night before I was watching John Wick 4. And it's amazing. It's a fantastic movie. But uh, being the pedant that I am, I couldn't help but think how much more enjoyable it would be if John Wick had a watch as great as the movie is. So he wears a Carl F. Bucherer, a Monero But I'm not going to roast it. But I think we can all agree it has nowhere near the personality and likability of Wick himself. I've always wondered how that partnership came about. It's just so bizarre. Uh, But it sparked an idea because bad watch character pairs are a common problem in many, many movies. So here's the premise: Uh, We're we're calling the start of this episode the Hollywood Watch History Rewrite, and we're going to run through a few iconic films with watches and. Choose a new watch for the protagonist. The only rule is that it can't be a watch that's already in the film. So we're re-scripting that bit of history. That's the premise, and John Wick is the first movie. I'm sure we both have a lot to say here. Um, I've introduced it. Max, why don't you start us off?
0: Okay. So, full disclosure, I've only seen the first Wick. I have not seen the final three.
1: That's really the one that matters, but you should. They just get better.
0: I had to Google the watch that he wore because it's not really prominent in the movie, Right. Or at least not in the first one,
1: not not terribly. It does get a little more prominent. Uh, You can see it, but uh, you kind of have to have the personal curiosity to go and hunt down what it is to know.
0: Got it. So it's been some time since I saw the movie. So I went on YouTube and Googled some of the scenes and I recall. Wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. wait. Let me recap. I can do it very quickly. People kill dog. Man kills people. Carry on.
0: That's actually a pretty good synopsis (laughs) from what I can recall. But um, what I what really stuck out to me because I was kind of looking through objects throughout the scene, and he drives a resto modded Mustang, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how I sort of re- landed on the watch that I chose, which uh, is a Bamford Rolex Submariner. That's unexpected from you. Well, I mean, it's not what I would pick for me, but it, you know, it's resto modded uh, in the same way, kind of that a vintage Mustang would be. Uh, I think he would like that it's uh, you know, kind of monochrome in its color scheme. It's, it's basically blacked out. Uh, it's a Rolex. It's a sub. We know Keanu Reeves has a thing for subs. He famously bought a number of them for cast members. I think it was a, for John Wick. I, I can't recall if it was for another movie, but I believe it was John Wick. I think it was, yeah. Um, yeah. And so that struck me as a particularly fitting watch for the movie. That's so left field from you. I, I, I So yeah, it,
1: it is It is totally like a resto modded in his wheelhouse. I see the logic and it makes sense. I just didn't see that coming.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, like I'm not picking it for me. <laughs> I yeah, think, no,
1: I, I think I struggle with that a little bit. So I have such kind of hardline watch rules for my own collecting. I struggle to look outside of them, but I, I really do need to be better about that.
0: Yeah, this was uh, outside the box for me, for sure. It took me some time to get there, but I have to give a little bit of credit, again, to the car, like seeing the... The resto-modded Mustang really put that sort of category into my head.
1: I like it. I love it. Well done. I don't. So if you watch the the latter three films, there's an aspect of his personality that becomes more clear. He's he exhibited exhibits it in the first one, but it's on a lower kind of momentum. I've heard this theory brought up from a friend of mine, and I completely believe it, which is that John Wick is somewhere like really far on one side of the autism spectrum. <laughs> He's weirdly good at one thing and all the details that surround it. He speaks a bit slowly, and he doesn't really care that everyone around him is dying on his behalf, especially in the latter movies. Uh, but I I would believe that. Um, and I would also believe because of that, that John Wick would put like really extreme attention into the watch that he wears and... He would want it to dress just as well as his suits, because if you pay attention to the fashion, he's immaculately dressed and classically tailoring throughout almost all of it. Granted, he always goes for like black on black, but it, it's exceptionally done. And I th- so there's a detail even in the first one that I'd noticed the first time I watched it and it appears in all the other films that I love, which is that. He this this Carl left booker that he wears he wears it normally when he's just going about his life But as soon as like he's on a mission or some sort of action is happening He flips it and wears it on the inside of his wrist to protect the crystal That's just a really cool detail So it makes me think that he would be ba- paying attention on every level to what he's doing and he's tailored in a black-on-black suit I really wanted to give him a calatrava because it ties in perfectly to the kind of gothic underworld vibes that the, the films have but um What I wanted to give him, which was a two, five, two, six, has a full enamel dial, which is, I think, probably way too fragile to be like shooting shotguns with and, you know, all the all the shit that he's doing. So I remembered then a watch from a few years ago, and I think it's even more perfect. It it came to my mind. and I just don't think a watch could match a character better, at least for me. It's a pink gold black dial reference two, four, five, two. Um. It's it's a very specific era of Calatrava that has this dished concave bezel and a stepped lug that really looks kind of gothic, elegant, long leaf hands, and it's 35 millimeters. And what I really love about this is there's one known, um, there are 25 that are known in rose gold, but there's one known with a black dial. And I think John Wick, being the stealthy assassin he is, would go for the black dial. And granted it sold for 90 K, but that's what, like one hit for him, probably like not even. So I, I don't, that's going to be my pick for John wick. I think it's a super attractive reference and fits his character to a T. So you chose a watch. That's one of one. That's going to be a theme this evening. I, I do a lot. of <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> All
0: right. We're going deep buckle up everybody. Um, I Googled this one. Uh, it's not a reference that I'm super familiar with, which, uh, after hearing how rare it is, uh, I guess, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise this does work for him uh when i first heard you going down the precious metal route i had some doubts but in looking at the watch given the profile of the case in the black dial it does work
1: i think rose gold is a kind of nuanced enough choice that it's kind of special mm-hmm. and something about it just really fits that kind of gothic vibe for me maybe it's the case design maybe it's the black dial maybe it's the rose gold but altogether, it just really works for me we sold a white dial in rose gold last year and it's one of those watches that uh it didn't get away because uh, it was it was never really mine to begin with but it's one of those that got away that i still think about all the time it's a, it's a very attractive thing
0: mm-hmm. it's cool also that it's in a larger case uh it looks like it's 36 millimeters or right around there
1: uh, yeah i think 35 and a half the, um, the the reference escapes me right now but there is a larger one as well uh with the same case style
0: hmm Interesting. And so this black dial example sold at Phillips in Hong Kong, it looks like a couple of years ago, maybe like a year and a half ago.
1: A year and a half ago, uh, I think it was about 90K in US, but uh, yeah, through Phillips Hong Kong.
0: You, you know what they say when a one-of-one watch comes up at Phillips? You should start sweating. <laughs> I'll leave it there. <laughs> All
1: right. uh, We have the next film, which I believe is a Max's pick. So uh, lead us in.
0: Yeah. So this next one is it's one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic watch in a movie, uh, movies that's ever been released, uh, which is Lamar. That was horribly phrased. How would you phrase it? Watching a movie, movie?
1: I would say this is one of the most iconic racing watches there's ever been. How's that?
0: This is one of the most iconic racing watches uh, that there has ever been. I'll be sure to give you a script for future episodes. Yeah, thank you, please. If we if you could type it out and send it to me ahead of time, I'd really appreciate it. Anyways, so the the movie, of course, is uh, Le Mans, which features uh, Hoyer Monaco. And so if you're not familiar with the watch, it's uh interesting design from Hoyer, not typically what people think of when they, you know, usually they think of... Uh, Carreras, I would say, or early Octavias. You know, this one kind of looks like an old TV set. It's uh, square and uh, has a really attractive uh, blue dial and just some nice red accents. And it's a very early 1970s era piece of nostalgia. Um, And so collectors really pine after these um, Monaco's today, uh, given the connection to racing and um, it's just a, a very fun watch to wear. So, uh I'll I'll let you offer your pick first on this one, Eric.
1: I didn't know this was a dictatorship. Thank you so much for letting me. Uh okay. One thing I have to say up front, this is a fucking awful movie. Like the the iconography and and the like capturing the era of 917s racing at Le Mans is amazing, but as a as a film it's really dreadful. Um I just had to point that out because it's a strong belief. Uh Okay, I know the obvious thing here would be to choose like a pre-moon Speedmaster, right? Because they were designed for car racing, but I'm not going to do it. Le Mans was filmed in 1970, which means we have basically all of the 60s to play with. My first thought, I think probably like almost everyone's here, was going to be going like a super niche chronograph uh, with a tachymeter scale, something like a Legant by Zenith, an Ennecar Sherpa graph, which would make sense for all of the F1 connections and like to sh- Sir Jackie Stewart and all of that, or a LeCoult, a Lecoult- E355, sorry, full French, le Um, or Nina Rint. Uh, but then my mind just, it does this thing sometimes where it just plants a little seed of uh, something I would remember from like five years ago and Googling watches, and you're all going to think I've lost my mind here. I promise you I haven't, but my answer is a 6541 Milgauss. The trouble is the reasoning and logic for why I chose this fits a lot better into the next topic that we're going to discuss this evening. So I have to say, keep listening for, for why I picked this watch. That's my answer here, and I will explain it later. I apologize, Max, but my answer is Milgauss.
0: That's uh, that's definitely out of left field. Uh, I mean, the lightning bolt definitely works for racing, right? It kind of makes sense.
1: I promise you it will all make sense in but 40 minutes, call it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, we already have a Rolex nicknamed to McQueen, and we know he didn't wear it. So I feel like that would work well in this movie.
1: That actually wasn't the angle I was taking. But yeah, if the Italians can make something up, why can't I?
0: Yeah, exactly. I I like that pick. I think that works.
1: All right, what's yours? Uh,
0: So mine was a A386 El Primero. Nice. Maybe a little bit of a layup. That that might be an easy one, but I don't really see a lot of old photos of uh, racers uh, or pit crews wearing Zenith. I'm sure it happened. Um, It it would just make too much sense. And, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why so many gravitated towards the Monaco is because it had the automatic movement. So, um, yeah, I think Zenith would look perfectly at home in that movie.
1: That's a fantastic point. I've actually never really stopped to contemplate this. I wonder why more people in racing didn't choose El Primero's. I've never really stopped to contemplate this before.
0: I don't know that Zeniths did so hot back in the day. I mean... No, that's a fair point. We care now that it was uh, sort of the first best automatic chronograph, but there were other automatic chronographs back then for far cheaper. Yeah, And I don't know that Zenith was as aggressive in its marketing tactics as, say, like Hoyer or Rolex. So I I think they played third and fourth fiddle a lot to Rolex, Hoyer, Omega, Which is really a shame because I think Zenith probably made a lot more interesting design decisions uh, than most of those other brands. I mean, the Monaco is kind of an exception because it's just such a fantastically 1970s design with wild colors. And uh, you you could almost imagine somebody who designed the livery of an F1 car would have done the dial for this watch. Hmm. But uh, Zenith was way out there with, with most of the stuff that they were doing. And that's before... You even arrive at the conversation around its its technological accomplishments with the movement. So it uh, it didn't get the love back then that it probably should have, and that's probably a function of them not being the self promoters that they could have been, like the other brands. And I think even today, people don't necessarily appreciate them as highly as they could.
1: Yeah, Hoyer were a king of marketing, and I also quite a bit cheaper, to my understanding, in period. Right. You can be, you know, subjective about design all day, but I, I just find the El Primero, um, I think it's 3019 PHC. That caliber is just far more interesting, technically ground up high beat, you know, uh, a lot of int- and it's pretty much still in production today, arguably. But yeah, interesting point. Now i stop to contemplate that. OK, next movie, then I think we're going to hit Wolf of Wall Street, which I mean, we have to. Right. Um, so Belfort wears a tag 1000 professional that's meant to look uh, like a 1680-8 sub. And back then it really was, that that sub was the Wall Street kind of I've made it watch. They were everywhere. And it's a big part of kind of American culture if you're not from here. And it's just so awful, the tag that he wears in the film, for me at least. The only reason, I don't know if you've read this, Max, but it's apparently been substantiated. The only reason that Leo wore the tag in the film was because he was a tag ambassador, and so he couldn't wear the Rolex. Um, and I really love the 1680 8. This guy, though, he he drives a Kuntash, right? He needs something more 80s, more loud, more personality. It just, like, I don't even feel like a gold sub goes far enough. And he also is not fabulously wealthy at the point he, acqu- he acquires his watch. I think I'm right in saying. I think it's kind of when he's on the up and up that that tag appears. So I'm going to go for something that's a little bit more reasonable, a lot more flashy, and way more left field, which is. Uh, a solid gold automatic IWC Yacht Club 2. (laughs) Really left field pick. But in the time of life, it would have made sense for him because the automatic version, I'm totally right in saying, I believe was less expensive than the quartz back then. And he would have only wanted gold. I feel like that's all that would have mattered to him. And this is just a brick of wide, flat gold. So it's a reference 9127, the Yacht Club 2 mechanical in gold. And the best part is that it's like truly razor thin, so I think he could use it to cut his lines. <laughs> what did you choose? <laughs> I like
0: yeah, I think you're really onto something there. Like, that's a really critical part of this is, like, you have to understand the context of Belfort or the character in the movie. Even even though he gets to a point in life where he's fabulously wealthy and is absolutely enjoying the spoils uh, of his riches, it, in most ways, he's an outsider looking in. He's never fully embraced by the the Park Avenue community, uh, in New York. And so I I think you have to feed that into your watch choice. And also having the context of why he wore the tag in the movie is really interesting. I was going to ask if you knew if that was sort of something that the prop director chose for the film, or if that was something that the actual Belfort wore. So it sounds like the former. Um, and I think, the, the prop guy deserves a lot of credit for that because that watch is sort of perfect for his character. Looks flashy, was expensive. Like he, I think he says in the movie it was $4,000 or something, which at the time was uh, super, super uh, expensive. But at the end of the day, it's just like a quartz tag. It's not especially well made. It's powered by a battery. It's just kind of a, a whatever uh, watch. So it works for his character really well. I chose um, a very different watch, but the criteria that I use to pick the watch is very similar. So it's like, what would a newly wealthy guy who's still kind of looking up into, as he says in the movie, the the people in the wasp strongholds uh, of the, of the <laughs> Gold Coast and Long Island, wh- like what does a person like that think that those people are wearing? So I chose uh, Patek Philippe Nautilus, uh, reference 3,700, but this is the key, B.A., uh, not J. <laughs> yeah. So two-tone, uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with, with the reference. Um, and that watch is fabulous, by the way. I've had it on my wrist uh, a number of times, and I love it. And I'm not really somebody who uh, really adores two-tone, uh, but it is a fun change-up. And a Nautilus, uh, particularly a reference 3700, is good regardless of what kind of metal It's in. So it would be a tasteful choice, but at first glance, if you saw somebody wearing it uh, with it being two tone, your first thought might not necessarily be oh, what a great, uh, tasteful, uh, timeless selection.
1: No, very much of its era, but surprisingly back, you know, as as many things from the late 80s and early 90s are two tone is, I think, as hot today as it's ever been.
0: It is. Um, and I like it quite a bit. Like I said earlier, it's not that I dislike it. It's not what I first reach for. But as a change up, it's pretty killer.
1: Yeah, no argument for me. It's something that is an acquired taste, for sure. I think when most people get into watches, they view it as that kind of late 80s, early 90s, really gaudy thing. But when you kind of start to love watches and really appreciate different metals and unique cases. It's just a lot of fun to play around with, uh, at least for me.
0: It's definitely true. Uh, I mean, I think like a lot of things in life, it's not necessarily what you're wearing. It's how you're wearing it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. can agree more. Uh, okay. I think our next movie is The Dark Knight, uh, which I think simply had to feature here. You'll all know Christian Bale wears a Reverso in this. As one of the least offensive pairings in this list to me, because it, it what exists currently tracks entirely, I think, with his character of Bruce Wayne. Uh, but nonetheless, it's still very fun to imagine what we would want to put there. And this one was incredibly easy for me. Straight out of the bat, I knew it had to be an work or to give it full German Uh And there's there's even an work named the Dark Knight, which is incredible. But there's something way more Batman than the Dark Knight, at least at least for me. Uh, in 2019, we're again back at Phillips, and we're again back with a one of one. But this one's a modern watch, so it's kind of, you know, it's more accepted. Um, there was a one-off experiment from Orwork, and some people will know where I'm going with this. It was a 10-year-long R&D project, which consisted of a true tabletop atomic clock, which is the kind of thing that normally takes up a room of space. Paired with a specifically designed mechanical wristwatch, where the tabletop atomic clock adjusted the wristwatch back to perfect accuracy automatically every time it was placed inside the master clock. This to me was really an experiment that showed how far Orwork was willing to push the technical edge of their development beyond just wandering hours and cool time displays built around that. It's a master clock pair. That's easily the most advanced in the world. It hammered at Phillips in 2019, I think for 2.9 million which is nothing to Bruce Wayne, but astonishing for everyone else. Uh, I went back last night just to read about it again, just for fun. The tabletop clock weighs 77 pounds. <laughs> it looks like the kind of thing that a Bond villain would store a nuclear warhead in. It's outrageous. It's the most over-the-top Orwark. And my favorite thing about it is that even at the hammer price of $2.9 million, supposedly Orwork lost money on this with all the R&D that went into it.
0: They did it for the love of the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, or something. Just madness. I, 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 think they need to, you know, maybe get some help over there. It's just absurd what they come up with. But um.
0: that—that's what makes you think that they need to get help. Baumgartner <laughs> <Bob> <laughs> left from a spaceship and free fell. <laughs> I don't even know how up, he, how high up he was. But wait, uh, is that
1: the same Baumgartner? I swear that's a different Baumgartner.
0: I thought it was the same guy. I thought it was Felix Baumgartner.
1: No, I think there are two people called Felix Baumgartner, but I might be wrong here. So maybe this is something that we'll circle back on the next episode and let you know our Baumgartner Baumgartner discoveries.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to do some research on that. It would be very strange if there were two guys named Baumgartner who are this insane.
1: I think it is. I think it's two Germans who are both just bonkers and just expressed it in different ways. Don't name your kid Felix Baumgartner, everyone. Keep them safe.
0: That's unreal. Um... Yeah, I think this thing is really cool, and I could absolutely see, like, if you subtract or off the name of the clock and off the watch, you could see um, Bruce Wayne kind of enlisting Fox to help him design something like this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I could absolutely see him wearing this watch. It's uh, it's cool. It's not attractive. Um, I, I don't really find the watch to be particularly Nice, but yeah. uh, the desk clock thing is out of control. I mean, it looks like a nuclear football, like what you were talking about with the Bond villain. So, yeah,
1: the amount of development in that. So, as so, I live in Boulder, Colorado, and we have the most accurate atomic clock in the world here at a at a lab called NIST, which I've toured because I graduated the physics program here, and it's mind-blowing to me that that kind of development can be fit into something this small i mean when you see the the lasers and all of the little things that have have to happen in order for i don't even you know i can't even pretend to understand his full complexities but the fact that it was shrunk down to this level just blows my mind
0: it's very cool you can see him like mounting this in the batmobile or something oh yeah and have,
1: having like a few of the atomic clocks in different places just to be sure it's totally accurate
0: <laughs> <laughs> right all right what's yours yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great pick. That's a, another oddball that's like, how do you even think of this shit? Um, so I would have never, I didn't even know that he wore a Reverso in the movie. I had to ask you. Like, so I, is this a, like a well-known thing?
1: Yeah, I'd say so. That really surprised me that that missed you somehow.
0: But like, it's not even in that many scenes. Okay, anyway, that, this is really <laughs> an earth-shattering moment for me. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, that was instructive for sure to know that he went for... Uh, a reverso, because to me that says, you know, he's got his pick of literally any watch uh, on earth and he goes for, for something that's a little bit on the dressier side with a sporting edge, you know, for meant for polo playing and and things like that. But uh, I wanted to go down that same vein. Like he he's going to err on the side of, you know, dressiness, timelessness, things that look a little bit closer to home uh, in a suit. Uh, So I went with the simplicity Uh, It feels like uh, a man with that station in life would kind of just take it to the max. And there are, I I struggle to think of sort of a more straightforward, well-executed dress watch than a simplicity.
1: Now, what made you go simplicity over anything, you know, kind of on that level? Call it, you know, a Rexap or a Roger Smith.
0: When I think of a Rexep or a Roger Smith, I think of designs that are a bit more intricate, at least in the dial, um, versus the simplicity, which, as the name implies, is fairly straightforward uh, on the dial. And, you know, I, I think given the choice of Reverso, he would just go for something as clean as possible.
1: I, I really love that. I didn't really expect independent or, you know, uh, uber high-end independent to come into this. I'm glad it did. I think it tracks perfectly for Bruce Wayne, right? I it's, it's the kind of thing that you can imagine if Philippe Dufour had been making his stuff earlier would have been given to him by his father. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's also uh, something he might have picked for himself, too. You know, just as what is objectively kind of, you know, the best finishing uh, there is. So, totally support it. I'm behind it.
0: Okay, last one. Uh, this is you know, there are probably people out there, uh, probably people out there already being like, how have they not brought this
1: one up? Yeah, there there are going to be pitchforks here. So uh, we're going to do James Bond and we're going to do specifically Craig era Bond. Uh, we're even going to shoot ourselves in the foot further because we're going to say we can't go Omega or Rolex whatsoever. So, you know, the original Fleming novels, uh, they're not going to apply here. Sean Connery looking all cool. Uh, that's not going to apply here. We're rewriting effectively the books and the films.
0: So bond, this is a big one, max. What do you got? So I have my actual one. Then I have more the fun one. My actual one's a Breitling emergency for obvious reasons. <laughs> Not that he would ever need it. I'm not sure that slides under the cuff so well. It certainly doesn't. But then again, neither does the Omega monstrosity that he wears uh, in in the latest movies. So um, that was my kind of practical pick. um, But one that I think is maybe has a little bit more thought behind it and also kind of pays homage to the British nationality of the franchise uh would be and i can't remember the name of the model but you know what i'm talking about it's the bremont that they made and initially you were only eligible to purchase the watch if you had been ejected from like one of the british fighter planes yes
1: they're the orange barrel that's the i'm pretty sure i'm I'm pretty sure i'm right in saying i know exactly it's i want to say it's the martin baker they have numbers behind it, but it's like the two or the three. It's the Martin Baker, something with an orange barrel. And you could only get the watch if you had actually ejected from a fighter pilot seat.
0: Right. And like the counterweight to the seconds hand uh, on the dial was modeled after the ring that you pull to eject yourself out of the, out of the plane. It's not a, it's not really an attractive watch. It's not particularly cool as far as the watch itself is concerned, but you know, Bremont being a British company, it kind of fits here.
1: I think that was one of the best marketing plays those guys could have possibly made in their early years. I think they created a really cool watch with that.
0: Yeah. Um, again, like I'm, a- i would probably beg to differ with the last part of what you just said but it is cool It it is cool it, 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 is cool. it, I, it depends how you
1: define it depends. yeah i I, t- I take your point but it depends how you define cool i think the idea that they made a watch that you could only get if you were you know a fighter pilot who had ejected because they you know the brothers have their roots in aviation and all of that right uh, i think that's a very cool idea you know you uh, objectively the watch maybe isn't as cool but the fact that these exist and they're kind of out there in the marketplace and if one comes up is it it's, you know it's the kind of thing i might write about on Spring it's just an interesting story so to me that's cool
0: i, I kind of had this vision of uh bond or, or daniel craig like spending a day training with some fighter some british fighter pilots uh for the military and at the end of the day like them just kind of tossing him one of the watches as like a token for a cool day and then like at, in that situation i think he would absolutely wear it in service
1: so I love it. I think that makes sense. I think it totally tracks. I really didn't expect any of these picks. Braymont, you know, Dufour. Uh, we're, we're in new territory here. Well done. No, I'm
0: glad I can still surprise you after all these years. <laughs> what, what did you go with?
1: Mostly in bed, but yeah. Uh, okay. I, all I all I want in life is for Bond to have a Rolex Milsub, but that's not happening in our lives. And to me, like the next obvious pick, because uh, I think it is. I, I'm not a total Bond nerd, so. People don't kill me. I, I'm pretty sure his history was with the British Royal Navy. I could be wrong, the fictional character. So the next obvious pick for me would be a CWC or some Ministry of Defense naval watch, one of its equivalents. But Bond also, like obviously, very much likes nice things and the details matter. So to me, this watch needs to be sexy. And as much as I love the CWC and its peers, they're tools. They're not romantic or elegant, and Bond is. Now, pretty much every Craig Bond movie, he changes between two to three suits and two to three watches. So I'm going to do exactly what you did. I'm going to cheat a little bit as a cast and director, and I'm giving him two. One for when he's on mission and needs something more robust, and the other for, you know, when he's suiting and dressing to the nines. For the more robust pick, I'm giving Bond a titanium 50 fath- fifty <laughs> titanium fifty titanium fathoms bathyscaphe. It's a very refined, very capable watch that comes on a NATO, but it's still thin enough to be elegant. It's gray on gray, so very, you know, a bit stealth. Um, I came very close to choosing a 50 60 Aquanaut here. <laughs> I think it would have enraged a lot of people, but I think he needs a bezel for what he's doing. So I, I went Bathyscap. I think that's pretty hard to argue with for a mission oriented role.
0: So uh, let me jump in real quick. I, I think people. Need to understand how big a marketing coup it was for Omega to win the franchise, the Bond franchise, away from Rolex after so many years. Could you imagine where Blancpain would be today? Oh, my God. Uh, if instead of Omega, they had won that, uh, whatever it's called, sponsor- sponsorship, uh, placement, ambassadorship, whatever it's called.
1: They wouldn't be having to sell swatches, I'll tell you that much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hear so many people like want to love Bonk pump and specifically uh, the 50 Fathoms, but they j- like it just doesn't have the recognition in the market that I think a lot of people pine for when they're buying a watch kind of in that price range. And man, if they could somehow figure a way to get that into a movie, I, I just feel like it would be a smashing success.
1: They are very impressive watches in the metal, even despite the lightness of titanium. As soon as you get hands on with these, you can feel the quality oozing through it. So I, I just feel like that really suits the kind of go anywhere, do anything, bond, you know, dive, do whatever you need to do.
0: And is this the, the 38 millimeter version or is the, it the larger?
1: Are there, you know, I, I really should be better on modern watches. Let me, uh, I'm. No, Hairspring podcast be ignorant about watches uh so there's there's a 43 right that's the size of the larger one and then did they release one in a 38 i'm not even sure if they did or not maybe the one that they did for
0: hodinky did they do one for hodinky
1: i mean that would make sense if that were the case i don't even know
0: yeah here here here. i got it yeah there was a hands-on from 2017 the block pump 50 fathoms bathyscap 38 millimeter
1: perfect then yeah i think i'm gonna have to go 38 that that does make more sense Uh, And it it tracks more closely to my second pick, uh, which is for his formal outings, something very much in the Bond aesthetic, and I would say probably the sexiest dive watch that's ever been made, so much so that you could almost pass it off as a Calatrava. These are big words I know, but it's the Breguet 1646, 1646. If you don't know what this is, it looks nothing like the Breguet divers you are thinking of when I say Breguet
0: diver. There are two or three known. I don't think anyone thinks of a, a diver at all <laughs> when you say it, it. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Well they have they have them in the modern
1: range, but they're just, right. you know, they're I'm I'm sure that they'll be thrilled if they ever saw one.
0: Is is this the one that was at Phillips recently like the sea snake yeah. or whatever? Okay. And then
1: there was a, a apparently dubious one uh, at Christie's depending on how much you read into that, but there are two cases basically known the uh, case number 1613. And then where this reference got its name, which is case number one, six, four, six. It's an extremely thin case with a Bakelite bezel, huge outlined radium plots and the old style Breguet signature on the dial and nothing else. It's it's a very restrained dive watch to the extent that it might as well be, you know, something uh, kind of more formal than its role. And I I think that fits Bond's sensibility to a T. Uh,
0: That's a great pick. Um, It's a if there was a way to dress up a dive watch Breguet found a way to do it. I love it. Um, you see these floating around, many of them are illegitimate and I'm sure as a man of means, Bond would find his way into a real example. So I love that pick. Thank you for bringing that one up.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, I, I mean, it's kind of vintage Cartier level tricky thing, but uh, you know, if there are three known, you know, what are you gonna do? Uh, but I, I just love the way that thing looks. Um, even Even the ones that, you know, aren't kosher, I still love the way they look, I just never would buy one. <laughs> So that's, that's definitely my pick. Uh, And then I think those are the five films we really wanted to touch on. Uh, You got anything else, Max? Uh,
0: I do. Yeah. Those are the five that we're going to touch on. Um, If you're looking for a fun way uh, to kill a few minutes on your own, kind of in the vein of this exercise we just ran through, um, think about Pulp Fiction and the watch that uh, Bruce Willis is gifted (laughs) as as a, as a youth uh, from one of his father's service buddies. Um, and if you've seen the movie, you're probably chuckling to yourself right now. So have a have a good time with that one.
1: What a beautiful way to end the subject! I had a lot of fun. It was a great it was a great adventure through cinema. Uh, but that uh, that exercise, I think, is is good for a lot of mo- movies because it forces you to kind of unthink the paid sponsorships that you have in your head that you might not even be aware of and kind of reevaluate what you associate with each character. And it it comes more from you then than it does from branding. I had a lot of fun thinking about those and it it made me think more. And it links very nicely with something that you kind of placed into my mind earlier this week. Uh, There are a lot of really great watch stories. And Max, you introduced this topic. um, So why don't you tell me a little bit more about what you were thinking? But uh, watches get used in real life, too.
0: Yeah. um, You know, when it comes to vintage watches, there are a lot of great stories, um, particularly that come from use cases for the watches when they were originally manufactured. Um, And in a lot of cases, you know, we don't we don't really see the same use cases today because uh, technology has advanced uh, so far that the technology for the watches we love so much is effectively obsolete. And then also, it's interesting to think about these watches being made en masse uh, for so many sort of professions that don't even really exist today, or alternatively, are a very thin crowd, like, say, professional race car drivers or astronauts or things like that. So it's fun to think of the stories because they sort of typify the reasons why the watch were manufactured to begin with, Um, and it kind of lets us normies or plebeians like kind of play dress up a little bit, and that helps us place play some context uh, around why these things were were made in the first place. So um, I thought it would be fun if Eric and I could think of some underrated stories. We, we kind of hear the same ones get regurgitated over and over again. I, I think probably the biggest one is the Speedmaster uh, going to the moon. And so uh, there are some other watches, some other stories that don't get quite as much uh, publicity for one reason or another that I thought it would be fun to share.
1: I think it's also important work. Uh, people really do need to realize the difference between watches when they were necessary uh, for a lot of important things as opposed to today, when, not to be you know disparaging, but they are effectively luxury products. Um, so bringing it back to, <laughs> going back to movies, my earlier pick uh, for Le Mans when I chose the Milgauss, this is where I wanna start this conversation on my side. There was a two or three year period where Rolex was involved in the official timekeeping of Daytona and Sebring, but it wasn't yet official, and the Cosmograph hadn't been branded a Daytona. And during these couple years, I believe it was between 62 and 65, they gave the winners of Daytona and Sebring smooth bezel 6541 milgausses. There's an incredible photo of a Spanish racing driver, Pedro Rodriguez, winning the 63 Daytona and being gifted a Milgauss. And then Ken Miles and co-driver Lloyd Ruby of Le Mans and Ford vs. Ferrari fame, they were also awarded a pair at Daytona. Uh, It's confusing, but they were awarded a pair of Milgausses at Daytona. And they were photographed wearing them many times after. And finally, the very storied NASCAR driver Richard Petty, who's a very left field, he also owns one, which gives what is a traditional scientist tool watch a strange, absurd motorsport edge that no one really knows about, virtually no one knows about. It's it's just bizarre, and I love it, uh, but it comes from kind of a period where Rolex were really doing the timekeeping for Daytona, so I wanted to mention it. And now, hopefully, it makes sense why I chose that for the movie Le Mans, because Steve McQueen's character to get to Le Mans was probably racing in these races around that time
0: frame. That's brilliant. I, as a native North Carolinian, uh, I've got a strong affinity for Richard Petty. The guy's kind of impossible to not love. And seeing him in in photos, in old photos, both as a race car driver, but then in his later career uh, as more of like an ambassador for NASCAR and and one uh, and, and somebody who managed uh teams uh seeing him wear like daytonas and things around is is very very cool Mm -hmm.
1: and uh, to our broadly international audience which we do know by the metrics if nascar doesn't make a lot of sense to you and you think it's just formula one going in a circle you're entirely right but here in the us nascar isn't a race it's an excuse to go get drunk and hang out and get tan and have some fun kind of partying for a couple days that's really all it
0: is (laughs) listen do i watch nascar nope but do i love it anyway yep (laughs)
1: Me neither. It's an event to go to.
0: Yeah. All you really need to see to understand it is just go Google Richard Petty (laughs) and look at three photos of him, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Guy, uh, you may not love how he drives a car, but I can think of not too many people that would be more fun to have a beer with.
1: That man might have more style than James Bond.
0: (laughs) In the South, he does for sure. (laughs) In the South, he does for sure.
1: Max, I think there was one story that kicked this idea off in your mind. Would you please share
0: that with us? Okay. Yeah. So this, this actually has been written about, but it's still um, sort of criminally underrated in my mind. The, the story is of Mercedes Gleitz, who was uh, a British athlete, and she was the first woman to cross the English Channel. And unfortunately, this wasn't the case when she first accomplished the feat But she uh, later did the crossing again, uh, and this time was wearing a Rolex Oyster, not on her wrist, uh, but around her neck. So many people aren't familiar with this watch, which is a shame because uh, first of all, it's just an incredibly impressive achievement. And then second of all, people don't really understand the significance uh, of the watch. It was one of the first Rolex Oyster models. And the case of the watch was really interesting. It was octagonal. Uh, and it was made of 9-karat gold. It was one of the first waterproof models from Rolex. They did have some models that were earlier uh, in waterproof. But this kind of execution of the case included a screw-down crown, and that kind of became one of the key tenets of Rolex's sort of sport design that, you know, still persists uh, today. So it's just a monumentally important watch to go with like a very cool uh, woman and and trailblazer and and athlete. So a couple, a couple other things about it um, that I, that I think are really interesting. I mentioned that Glitz was the first woman to swim the channel, although she had done so successfully prior to the attempt uh, when she wore the Rolex. And there was some controversy there because um, there was another woman who apparently claimed she was the first, uh, to, to cross the channel. And so Glitz actually went back and did it for time the second time around, and that's why she wore the watch. That's pretty badass. That's pretty badass. There's a, there's a little known kind of story with this. The case back of the watch was engraved with the following, Miss M. Glitz, the companion oyster. So the watch was kind of calling itself her companion for the swim. And then it called itself, or it kind of labeled the, the, uh, the race, rather, the Vindication Channel Swim, and then the date of the swim, October 21st, 1927. So the reason why this is important is because it really set the stage for Rolex to become Rolex as we know it today is uh Wilsdorf kind of leveraged uh the, the channel crossing and lights wearing the, the watch around her neck into this massive marketing campaign that had never really been done before for, for watches. And so it was this combination of Great marketing with orological innovation being used in a real use case. That sort of trifecta of factors had never really come into play before uh, with watches. And in a lot of ways, Rolex is the same today, right? Like they're they're all about positioning their watches as a tool for like trailblazers and great athletes and for the adventurous among us. And that has its roots all the way in the 1920s, really. Uh, And I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that. And so for my money, and I've heard Eric Wind uh, say this before, I, I think it's the most significant Rolex in history. And that kind of brings into question, okay, where in Rolex's museum is it? Uh, it's not in Rolex's museum. The, the watch was last seen at a Christie's sale in the summer of 2000. And um, it had been consigned to Christie's from a descendant of uh, Gleitz's. And the watch. <laughs> This is a, just a wild thing to think about. The watch sold for just seventeen thousand uh, pounds to a private collector, um, and allegedly the rumor is that the watch remains in the same private collection today. And you know, if if I were a, a betting man, I would say this is Rolex's ace of spades. Uh, like this is the the number one watch on the top of their list that they want to have in their museum. So I think not a lot of people know the story. I think some people loosely know the story, but don't truly understand the significance of it. And so, you know, I would really encourage people to to hop online and, and do a little bit more research. There's some great material on the original patents and design for the uh, for the Oyster case. And it's just really important in, in understanding what is unquestionably the largest watch brand. And, and possibly, I think I would be comfortable saying the the most significant luxury brand in the world.
1: I think you're entirely right. I would say this is the start of Rolex's most significant contribution to the watch world, which is peerless marketing. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, they uh, had in Rolex, uh, you probably couldn't call them ADs at the time, but in Rolex stores of the era, they had little water fishbowls with watches at the bottom of them and then advertising all around this feat. Uh, it, it is a... It's an incredible story. It's an incredible watch. And I actually did not know that bit of trivia about Christie's. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. That's brilliant. Thank you for that.
0: I think everybody, you know, when they think of the best vintage Rolex stories, they they think of the sub getting strapped on to the submarine or or the sea dweller going to the I don't know. What did they call the first one? I guess it was a sub getting strapped to the submarine and going into the Mariana Trench uh, Trench. Yeah. Go before that. Like, I, I think that that's obviously an amazing story, but it's really just a continuation of what we're talking about right now.
1: Yeah, and actually, so I have a few more stories that I kind of want to touch on. And then one I want to dig a little deeper on, but the few stories I want to touch on are really similar to this. And it, it, I think it points to a broader theme. The first is, I have two that I think probably people who are deep enough to be listening at this late hour of the podcast will have heard before. One is called The Watch That Came In From the Cold, which is a really exceptionally well-written story about a guy called Norman Schwartz, who flew covert missions for the CIA during the Cold War. He was shot down over China on an extraction mission, and Schwartz didn't make it, but his watch did, and it came back to his family many years later. Uh, And this was just a Incredible story and really quite haunting about how these objects outlive us and remind others of us long after our existence and It was one of the most heroic things. I think a watch can endure. It doesn't really look like a watch anymore um, it's a ter- engine turned bezel de just where the crystal has been kind of burned and so it's almost a volcanic red as it was in a wreck and um, it's just a very, very wild story uh, about, you know, a Rolex, and then the other is about a Tudor. I want to touch on this quickly. It's, it's called the Long Return, and this is a watch that uh, was on the wrist of a soldier in Vietnam, and it took a bullet directly to the case. Uh, later on in its life, it, it reunited two friends who bonded over this experience. It's a, it's a strangely heartwarming story. Um, and then Hodinki got in touch with Tudor. Uh, they covered the story, and then they had Tudor restore this watch, which was not running, but the case is still. In the same kind of deformed shape it was on one of the lugs from a bullet striking it, which I mean, what are the odds of that happening? It's absurd, um, but quite quite an interesting tale. And the fact that the watch still works today is amazing. Uh, and then the last one I want to touch on really quickly is a Bolova Accutron. <laughs> and the, the Accutron is going to be known to almost everyone who listens to this, but the Accutron astronaut is a little bit more niche and it has one of the most incredible aviation histories of any watch that no one really mentions it was on the wrist of pilots during the Oxcart spy plane the u2 the x15 and eventually the sr71 and all of its development pilots back then needed a watch that was able to cope with massive temperature fluctuation and high g acceleration and none of the mechanical watches that the u.s tested could handle it they all struggled with it and I think the story of the Concorde GMT is great, you know, it, it, professional tools for pilots, but this was a watch for spy planes and, you know, I just find that way cooler. People, you know, the watch is not as valuable simply because it's quartz, but um, you know, historically it's a very significant watch to aviation. And it's also, you can find them on these coffin link bracelets, which just for me, I find really rather sick. So that Acutron astronauts and their links to SR-71s are one I want to point out as well. But really... I bring up all these three and I started with a Rolex too, um, to point out something maybe a little bit more deeper. You may have noticed these are all stories of people doing amazing things who actually depended on their watches. And that doesn't happen anymore today. And it's a part of the reason why we love vintage so much. I think Max, you and I, these watches really did help people do extremely important things. And, you know, often those watches were Rolex. I, I brought up, you know, the Belova to capture that. There are many others as well. But for all the nonsense that's attached to many of these brands today, that golden era really did stand for something for me. Um, and there are just amazing stories that I think all too commonly kind of just
0: get lost. It's just important to, you know, as somebody who's actively involved in the hobby, it's important to kind of take it upon yourself to, you know, do do a little bit of unprompted research and just like dive deeper and challenge the things you know and challenge yourself to to find more cool stories, because there's really no shortage of them uh, online. Many of them uh, have been super well-documented o- over the years. Um, and so it can be really rewarding to take the time to really learn great stories and how they've kind of come to frame the the watches that we know and love today. So I would encourage you all, when, when you're done thinking of a, a new watch for Bruce Willis to receive in Pulp Fiction... <laughs> You know, maybe maybe go out there, spend a little time on Hodenki spend a little time on the old Rolex forum, see if you can dig up a cool story or two. Because when you find the one that maybe you read 10 years ago or 15 years ago or, or whatever, and it's an important story and it's really got some some action to it, um, it's it's very rewarding. And it, it just just helps you appreciate the watches all the more.
1: So I have one more for you and then we'll move it on, which is, I think, emblematic of what you just described. It's a tale of Charles Wuerl and his Patek Philippe 1461. Um, In World War II, Charles Wuerl was a U.S. Air Force pilot who was shot down and sent to Stalag Luft III, where he helped dig out the three tunnels that led to 76 men escaping uh, the Nazis, which is incredible. But one of the few glimmers of hope during his time was a Patek Philippe. He came across a promotion when he was in the camp in a magazine, I believe, of Patek advertising a buy now, play lay, pay later plan to everyone, which is just absurd to think about. I know the Swiss you know, are famously neutral, but the fact that these guys were carrying on making watches when the world was burning around them is just absurd. But uh, he filled out his information on this card and posted it. And amazingly, Patek Philippe got back to him and there was a bit more discourse exchanged to the mail. And eventually they wound up sending him this steel, 1461. And it was sent to his camp where he received it. And apparently it was the talk of the town people lined up outside of his room to come and see it or outside of, i you know, I don't know the situation, not room, but wherever he was, people lined up to come and see it. And true to his word, when he was freed, world paid for the watch in full. But that's not where this story ends. He lived the rest of his life near my hometown in Minnesota. And sadly, his house was burgled in the mid 70s. And that watch was stolen. The fuckers. I'm sorry, Max's mom, though. I can say that here. Fuckers. It's never been recovered. After hearing this story, many years later, his niece took it upon herself to write to Patek Philippe and see what could be done. And this is the kind of story that just makes me love the brand. Um, And, you know, say what you will about maybe their missteps. This is, to me, what they stand for. They did their absolute best to try and hunt down a steel 1461, but they simply couldn't. Um, For those that know, it's a very hard thing to find these days. Instead, they did the next best thing and found him a gold 1584 from the mid 50s, had it professionally looked at at Patek, inspected, serviced, all of it, and then they sent it to him and engraved the back to Charles B. Whirl for your enduring loyalty from Patek Philippe. And it's those kinds of things that make me love watches. Um, Just people doing good things when they don't have to. It makes me so happy.
0: That's a pretty cool story. I hadn't heard that one before. It's worth reading deeper on. It really is early mid-century paddock just doesn't get much better than that one of my favorite stories uh, with them is uh releasing the 1518 in in 42 (laughs) (laughs) just like impossible you know (laughs) like just a wild thing to think about but yeah that's what they were doing back then they had their heads down making watches and the best watches of the world back then
1: you could say they're still doing it today
0: yeah, I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. But, you know, some people might say that.
1: Yeah, uh, I think we're going to close out with an only wrist uh, and then that's it. Um, this week's this week's only risk comes to us from Ohio Watches spelled O-H underscore I-O dot watches on Instagram. And it is the following. You are a 39 year old ENT surgeon living in Minnesota, my homeland. You know, we're doing well in this episode. Five years ago, your fitness tracker broke. And you've been wanting something more permanent. So fast forward five years. You now have a collection of a few modern sport Rolex, Tudor and even the odd Nomos. You've been ranting in your wife's ear about a birth year watch since this addiction hit. And to your surprise, she's behind it. You want to watch from 1983 to mark your 40th. You've always admired the 222 or the 5402. But this is just a bit too far for you financially. 35 K is the budget. A bit of extra color, when you were younger, you dreamed of being Jimmy Chin, a Nat Geo photographer type. Today, you're getting outdoors a lot, canoeing, hiking, and still exploring, and you might still be gay for Bertie Gregory, who I had to Google, but apparently, you know, he's a Nat Geo photographer type. This watch has to be from 1983, at home in a professional setting, ideally a bit durable to keep up with you in that outdoors. And most of all, this is kind of a curveball, you'd like to pass it down to your son. Okay, Max. What do you got? 1016. You have to say more. You have to build up to it. This is an entertainment podcast.
0: I don't know. I mean, 1016 is kind of perfect. Midwestern sensibilities like spend time outside. The watch can hold up to it. Uh, Like, sounds like somebody who would do a lot of shopping at L.L. Bean and and things or like an Orvis or something. You could easily slap like an L.L. Bean or Orvis logo uh, on the dial and it would look right at home. I mean, this is the, the watch du jour of, you know, guys who sort of Fashion themselves as uh, sharply dressed outdoorsmen. I'm thinking of a particular editor at uh, Hodinkee. Uh, you know, just doesn't really get more perfect than this for for this guy's lifestyle.
1: I'm annoyed. I mean, okay. I think the 1016. You're annoyed. I'm it, annoyed. <laughs> we're both annoyed. Great way to end the 1016. I think is unarguably a great pick. Uh, it fits him. It fits his life. It's fine. It's not as inventive as I would like. I will criticize this so i'm going to lean more into the side of his aspirations and professional life from what i understand surgeons can't wear anything in the or for obvious you know bacterial reasons and all the rest but uh even just around the space from what i understand there are a ton of massively magnetic instruments and heavy machinery so i want something very substantial durable ideally anti-magnetic and also something that scratches the 222 and 5402 itch very thoroughly and for me there's really only one option that hits all of these and it's the original 1832 iwc Ingenieur. it's genta designed legendarily durable with 100 meter water resistance too, you so it can jump in the minnesota lakes and it's that overbuilt because it's housing an iron anti-magnetic faraday cage i'm gonna go gray brushed yeah gray vertically brushed dial for adaptability and that kind of amazingly can only just be had but it can be had at 35k in
0: today's market great pick you, you know what's funny about that your pick is better uh it's better well thought out it's uh it makes more sense in the use cases for his lifestyle I would wager all the money in uh my watch account right now that if you put that watch next to a 1016 and told him choose he would pick the 1016.
1: And I would too, speaking plainly. So, (laughs) well done. You win.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The better choice doesn't always win.
1: No, but sometimes you got to take a detour to be a little bit interesting.
0: No, that's a, that's a, that's, that was, that was a great pick. That was like an impressively fitting pick and a little bit more interesting and more You
1: see what's happening here, everyone? Max, Max feels, Max feels bad now that he just totally wiped the floor with me and he's trying to make me feel better having just rubbed it in my face. I see what you're doing.
0: Well, I feel bad not because I won, but because uh, I won while you had the better pick. So, yeah, I've got some guilt for sure.
1: You won because you, I was a gentleman and I let you go first. That's why you won. <laughs> Only reason.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, no, I'm going to win because I, I managed to intertwine throwing shade at Hodinke, uh in my, in my pick. Um all right, we, we we better cut it there.
1: Thank you. Fun
0: as always, my friend.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Always do. All right, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you for uh, episode six, I believe. All right, take care. Bye-bye.